You're listening to our Voices series, where our church family is eager to hear from the hearts of local pastors in the Seattle area and the Greater Puget Sound as we work together toward gospel saturation. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. Alrighty, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19 uh, eventually. Uh, that'll be the, the main place we hang out today. Before we even dive into the scriptures, what is, which is what I'm most excited to do, uh, I just got to tell you how honored and excited I am to be here with you guys. Uh, first of all, as recently as, gosh, six years ago, I was sitting in those seats with, with some of you, uh, having some of the most profound moments of my life in terms of worship and seeing radical generosity and being a part of a church community. So I'm completely honored to share that lineage with, with many of you guys. And so thank you for that. Uh, I am incredibly thankful for, for Justin and for Donald, some of these new friends who have become incredibly uh, encouraging in a very short amount of time. <laughs> I think that's my daughter yelling at me right now. I'm supposed to ignore that as a seasoned communicator, but she's really, really cute, guys, really cute, uh, doing my very best. Uh, I love your pastor. Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt has been uh, an inspiration and an example for me, and I'm honored to call him a friend now, so uh, honored to be invited here. Uh, it was pretty awesome. When we started Reach about five years ago uh, that summer, uh, somehow it worked out through a relationship that Jeff was willing to come and hang out in my living room with our core group and teach us how to live on purpose and on mission. And so uh, your fingerprints as a community are all over my life and over the, the life of, you know, Reach as a whole. So, so honored to be here. Uh, planting Reach has been the adventure of my adult life. The only exception to that is, uh, was marrying this woman. This is Emily. We just celebrated our 10-year anniversary and got to go on a trip. Uh, I got no applause for the 10 year anniversary at either service. Yeah. The big goal was stay married for 10 years, guys, and we nailed it. So we want to we acknowledge that. Uh, we're about to have a, another adventure today as soon as I walk off stage and hopefully get to talk and pray with some of you. We're jumping in a minivan and driving to the Oregon coast for a couple days with, uh, with the kiddos. So just to be clear for terminology, did we just applaud the Oregon coast? Did that just happen? Okay putting me in my place. My, okay, don't want to be overzealous. So uh, just to be clear, helpful terminology for some of you new uh, parents, if you have kids with you, it's a trip. If you don't have kids, it's a vacation, all right? So we're about to take a trip to the Oregon coast, and then I will need a vacation. So that is how that works. I encourage you to adopt that terminology. So anyway, let's get into the scriptures. At Reach, what we've been doing for 2017 is we've been walking through the story of God. We've been walking through the narrative that we see in this incredible book, in the scriptures, uh, Genesis to Revelation, just seeing what God is doing in the world and how Jesus is the center of it all. The whole book is about Jesus, and we've been focusing on that. This summer, we've been zooming in on the Gospel of Luke. We've reached the point in that process where King Jesus actually arrives. He actually shows up, and nothing is ever the same when he does so. So what we're going to do, we're actually going to use some of the content that I preached last Sunday, uh, kind of mashed up with things we've done throughout the summer. And part of the reason I'm doing this is because some of you are church shoppers, and odds are someone in the room was at my church last week. Here's what's going to happen. You're going to make docs at your home church today, or I will show up next week wherever you go, and the week after that, and preach the same sermon over and over again, all right? So you're going to have this, like, biblical Groundhog's Day thing going on with the tall guy. It's best you just stay here, all right? Put the roots down, be a part of an awesome community. So that is what we're going to do. We're going to investigate 
what happens when Jesus shows up? When Jesus shows up, and this sounds like such a simple theological declaration, but I just want you to hear that, that he does. That he does. All of us come to this place needing Jesus to show up somehow, right? This in, in some way. Some of us, it's for the first time. Others, we are dealing with circumstances that many of us would not believe if we heard them. And we need Jesus to show up. What a wonderful theological foundation to stand on that he does. Amen? Jesus shows up. It's what he does. He can't not show up if you're okay with double negatives, all right? That is, this, that is the theological truth. And what is so incredible about this moment at the beginning, like in the Gospels, in the greater story of Jesus, of, of uh, just the biblical theology we see throughout the scriptures, is uh, the grandiose nature of the moment when Jesus shows up. We're going we're gonna to dive into a couple examples of what it looks like when he does arrive on the scene. But just to put it in context, guys, this book, 75, 80% of it is all build up to what we're talking about today. Like, page three of the Bible is how long it takes for everything to go completely awry with humanity. Like, right off the bat, things are broken. And we get promises at the very beginning of Scripture that one day he will come. One day the rescuer will come, and he's going to fix everything that's been broken, and it's going to be about forgiveness and healing and reconciliation, and it's going to be beautiful. Things are going to be the way that they're supposed to be. And everything after that, like all of this in the Old Testament is pointing to this glorious fact. And we get these breadcrumbs as we read through the Old Testament, these hints, these prophecies that tell us that we're going to get a rescuer just like Moses, that we're going to get someone from the family of Abraham who will be faithful like Abraham and bless all the families of the world, that we're going to get a king like David from the line of David. So all these are referring to the same person, and we find out it's going to be a king that we're awaiting. The posture of the entire Old Testament is one of waiting, is one of excitement and anticipation. The question of the Old Testament is, will he come? When will he come? When will the king show up? The promises that the prophets put out in the Old Testament are, yes, there will be judgment. Yes, there will be difficulty. Yes, there will be hardship. But hang in there. The king is coming. That's the message of the Old Testament. Now, what it's hard to appreciate when you're reading through the scriptures in their entirety, perhaps in a year-long Bible reading plan, whatever it might be, is that between Malachi, the last book of the prophets in the Old Testament, and then Matthew, the first line of the New Testament, we just kind of turn the page and keep cruising. In the context of redemptive history, there were 400 years in that page break. 400 years of prophetic silence. 400 years of waiting. Is he coming? Will he show up? Were we just completely hustled? Is our hope really meant to be in this king that we've been waiting on? And then silence and angst and waiting. And then the king shows up. He shows up. The Gospels begin, we have these four biographies talking about the king whose name is Jesus shows up on the scene, nothing is ever the same ever again. And that's probably the biggest warning I have for you is if Jesus shows up in your life in a profound way today, you cannot remain the same. And that's good news. That's good news. So that's the plan. We're going to look at three different examples of how Jesus shows up uh, in, his, in his earthly ministry. Uh, we're going to cruise through the first two, really camp out on the third. And the, the text is naturally going to show us, by showing us Jesus and how he did show up, 
what it looks like for him to show up in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. So that's the plan. First, I'm just gonna uh, take the initiative. Will you bow your heads? Let's pray one more time and just ask God to speak to us through this book and through these moments together. And first, as, you, as with your head bowed, just take a moment and I ask you to boldly pray, regardless of your background, uh, for, for God to speak to you in these next few minutes we have together. And then would you take a moment and would you pray for the people to your left and to your right, in front of you and behind you, would you ask God to speak clearly into their lives this morning? And then, and finally, uh, I'm bold enough to ask, would you pray for me, that God would speak clearly through me and, and handle his scriptures responsibly? Jesus, we declare together that despite being a people with different backgrounds, God, we are united in our universal need for you to show up in our lives this morning. And so God, uh, would you give us ears to hear you, eyes to see you, and a heart to receive you? It is in your name we pray. And everybody said together, amen. Can you recall the first time Jesus showed up in your life? Can you recall it? Can you remember the circumstances? I don't care if you have like some very predictable Christian upbringing. Like when was the first time you were certain he was real and he was there? The simplicity of that incredible moment, right? Hold it in your mind. How about this? Uh, in addition to that, when is the time circumstantially Jesus showed up in miraculous fashion? Did something you didn't think he could do? Something that changed everything? A helpful question might be, uh, are you one of the people in the room who thought you had a really good plan for your life and then Jesus showed up and messed everything up? Anybody got a story like me? Just me? Thank you. Appreciate that, right? Uh, I, just to be clear from Donald's intro, I am not a pastor on the side. My day job is not an NBA player counting my money with my business degree. That is not how life played out for me, okay? I'm not bitter at all, I promise, uh, as the 6'9 preacher guy. Uh, but yeah, Often Jesus shows up when he does, nothing changes, nothing stays the same. Uh, and what we have to get in the habit of asking more often is what if he did not show up? In terms of your salvation, in terms of your knowledge of him, in terms of your identity in him, but also those big moments you can remember where he did show up and do something paradigm shifting. What if he had not proven himself so faithful in those moments? We have to look through what we're going to do today through that lens. Recently, my father-in-law, his name's Philippe, he was on a European vacation. I asked him, what was the highlight, Philippe? And this is what he told me. He told me that the highlight was getting to go to the beaches of Normandy, to Omaha Beach, to the site of uh, where D-Day took place in 1944 in the month of June. So this was within a couple days of the 75th anniversary of that incredible military effort where 150,000 allied soldiers took the beaches knowing there would be great cost and many lay down their lives to, to hopefully bring about what would be the end of the war, right? So he went to the beaches of Normandy near Omaha Beach and he met a couple dozen Frenchmen ages 20 to 65 who were dressed in American military uniforms, completely authentic, some of them bearing the big red one of the first infantry. Uh, and these Frenchmen were there, and they do this often, where they go and they maintain the memorials and they clean the grave sites and they have times of remembrance for the soldiers from D-Day. 
And my father-in-law, who was fluent in French, leaned into one of the younger men there and said, what are you, why are you here? What are you, what are you doing here? You're a couple generations removed from, from all of this. And without missing a beat, that young Frenchman said, oh, I know I'm a couple generations removed, but I also know that if these men did not come, my country might not exist. And I also know that if these men did not show up, my family might not exist or certainly might be displaced somewhere else. We live in the daily awareness that our reality would be completely different if these men did not count the cost and still show up. That's the spirit we need to read the gospels with. What if he didn't come? Like having a gratefulness and a grateful heart waiting as we read about when Jesus showed up. So let's go ahead and jump in to that. The first time in the Gospels that we literally see this happen is when the king shows up for his nativity, for his birth, where the king of all kings, creator of all things, puts on flesh and is willing to subject himself to the very creation he created for you and for me and for our rescue. We see uh, in Luke chapter 1, when an angel appears to Mary, this young, terrified girl, what would happen? Uh, starts foretelling what was going to happen, this divine messenger. And the angel's message to Mary, you typically only read it in a Christmas Eve service. We're going to read it right now. But to recap, here's what the angel's message was to Mary. First, it was, don't be afraid, which is kind of counterintuitive when an angel is talking to you. Uh, Secondly, you're going to have a son and name him Jesus, which is surprising to her because she's a virgin. Thirdly, he'll be called the son of the most high. This is a divine title. Then he says he's going to sit on David's throne. Pay attention to the names. They're going to be familiar from the introduction. He's going to sit on David's throne. He'll reign as one from Abraham's family, and his kingdom will have no end. Do you remember what we were waiting for in the fast forward? Like we're going to have... A king from David's line. We're going to have someone who's faithful like Abraham from Abraham's family. Bless all the families. And he's going to be a king and his kingdom will have no end. That's what's happening. That's what's taking place in this exact moment. This angel is saying, he's coming. You're going to carry the king in your womb. And nothing will ever be the same. A few verses later, Mary sings a song. And she gives us a glimpse of what it'll be like when the king comes nine months later, right? And the praise it's bringing up in her, she says some of the following. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. That's just some of the highlights of this song she sings. And immediately we learn as we read something crucial about what it's like when the king shows up with his kingdom. We realize that when the king shows up, people on the margins are brought to the center. People on the margins are brought to the center. People far away are brought near. We see that in the content of what she's saying, right? That the humble are lifted up and the proud and the arrogant are excused from the special nature of what's taking place. And there's good news for the poor and the oppressed and the humbled. That that's what's happening. That they're being brought to the center, to the king, into the nearness of divinity. This beautiful truth is taking place. But we don't just consider the content. We consider the person saying it. That Mary herself 
was in an obscure region, was in poverty, was, you know, this pregnancy was scandalous. And someone like that is being cast in a central role of the story that will change everything. The people on the margins are being brought to the center. And my friends, what is the gospel if it is not people who are far from God being brought near? Because they can't get there on their own. Now, how about this? What we learn right off the bat in this truth that when the king shows up, people on the margins are brought near, kingdom people should be all about this if that's what the kingdom's about, all right? We learn this right off the bat from this first example of the king showing up. Secondly, the king doesn't just show up in his nativity, he shows up for his ministry. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is Jesus showing up at his home synagogue in Capernaum. He's early on in his ministry, and traveling rabbis would typically visit synagogue to synagogue, and they would be given the honor of reading from whatever scroll they were reading from that day and just getting to do some teaching from it. And so there's this incredible story in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, where he comes to Nazareth where he's been brought up, and he goes to the synagogue on a Sabbath day, and he stands up to read, to take advantage of that custom. Verse 17 It says, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he, (laughs) this is incredible. He rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So he's just read a scroll full of messianic prophecies. That means promises about the rescuer, what it'll be like when the rescuer comes, how you'll know that the king has arrived. That's what he's just read, essentially a checklist of things to know about when you can be certain the king has arrived. And this moment is pregnant with anticipation and excitement and curiosity gives the scroll to the attendant, sits down, and says, what? This is fulfilled in your hearing. Has the audacity, the boldness to say, I'm the guy that we just read about. The king has showed up. The kingdom is at hand. One of the most important moments in redemptive history is this right here. So what do we learn from what Jesus reads? We learn the following, that in this kingdom, when the king shows up, there's proclaiming, there's healing, and there's freedom. Did you catch that? The the prophecy is bookended by references to proclamation, like the declaring of good news, hope for the hopeless. That will absolutely characterize what happens when the king shows up. And then there's the the blind will receive their sight. We call that healing, right? And the captives are going to go free. We call that liberty. We call that freedom. These are the kind of things that will follow in the wake of the king. And hear this, kingdom people. It's the kind of things that should follow in your wake when you live your life day to day as a follower of Jesus. As you and the community that you're a part of live on purpose, sacrificially, like the king, you should see such things in your wake. You should see yourself getting to be a part of the slaves going free. Whether that's getting to be a part of human trafficking, 
care or whether it's a part of seeing someone go free from addiction or free from habitual sin or free from regret or hopelessness or depression, you get front row seats to that, not just as an observer, but as a participant. You check into the game and you get to see such things follow in your wake. Freedom, proclamation of hope to the hopeless, healing. That's what should characterize kingdom communities if that's what the king is about, right? That's what we need to be focusing on. Those are the standards. Those are the opportunities laid before us. Beautiful when the king shows up for his ministry. Now, what I really want to focus on for these next few minutes is when the king shows up for his destiny. For his destiny. This is what we just got to in the story of God in our church family at Reach. This story called the triumphal entry, which is beautiful. Two and a half, three years into his ministry, excuse me, Jesus sets his eyes on Jerusalem, the place where he knows his destiny is waiting, the place where he knows he will meet incredible rejection, torture, and death for you and for me. He knows how this is going to play out. Three different times in the Gospel of Luke, he foretells his death and his subsequent resurrection, but he's not excited about the process. He's a man who felt a lot. He had emotions. He he knew what was coming, but he shows up anyway. Counts the cost and shows up. That's what takes place. And as we read this story, we find out that he is in a town called Bethany, very close to Jerusalem. And what happens is he sends out two disciples to go and retrieve a donkey. The the foal of a coat, of a colt rather, is what the scriptures say. He sends out two disciples to go get a donkey that he's going to ride into the city for his big moment. And it's worth highlighting this for the sense of context. Why is Jesus sending people to go get his donkey? He's a humble dude. He's more than capable, right? Why is he sending people to go do that? Two things that I think are really important. One is for context. We typically don't spend time thinking how crazy things had gotten around Jesus, like fever pitch hysteria around Jesus. He's been healing people and teaching with unprecedented authority for a couple of years now. And the curious that are all about the teaching are leaning in by the dozens and the hundreds and the thousands. And the desperate and the sick who have heard about healings are all bringing themselves and bringing their sick friends, just trying to touch even the hem of his garment, believing that they could be healed. All that's going on. Throw in the religious varsity people, the Pharisees that are trying to destroy him and eliminate him. They're all there scheming. He is bringing a crowd. And most recently... In the Gospel of John, we see right before the triumphal entry, the last ministry activity we see in the life of Jesus is when he raises a guy named Lazarus from the dead. Like, he shows up a couple days late when Lazarus is all the way dead. Not Princess Bride, mostly dead. Like, all the way dead, right? Shows up three days later, weeps over the situation and over death as a whole because he knows it's not the way things are supposed to be nor the way things will always be. And he calls Lazarus out of the grave. Lazarus gets up, takes off his grave clothes, and presents himself restored, resuscitated, alive to those around there. People tend to talk about things like that. You know, when you witness a resurrection, the buzz of that tends to get retweeted, if you will. And so that news beats Jesus to Jerusalem. Everyone's going to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover, which they'll celebrate a couple days after the text we're reading. And that's what's taking place. Like, everyone is waiting. Everyone is excited to see him. That is why Jesus cannot go get the donkey himself. And that context is important as we keep walking through 
the text. Second thing I want to hit quickly, why does he delegate that? Because disciples get roles in the story. That's how the kingdom rolls out. You don't sit in a chair and watch Jesus just do his stuff. He invites you nine times out of 10 to be the means by which prayers get answered and miracles happen. That's how things are supposed to work. You follow Jesus and you get invited into the story yourself. That's an example of what we're seeing here. So how about that? Quickly, quickly, why a donkey? Right? This is his big moment. And, you know, pick your animal, Jesus. What do you want to roll in for your big triumphant arrival, kind of your coronation day? I would pick probably something from the opening scene of Aladdin, be it like an elephant or, I I don't know, something amazing to present myself as the king of kings. This is like rolling up to the club, you know, I've never done this before, I don't really roll to the club very much, but, uh, you know, instead of like the Bentley or the Rolls Royce just showing up in the 74 Pinto hatchback, you know, that's kind of what the donkey is. It's a beast of burden, it's a peasant's animal. One, he's fulfilling more prophecies that foretell that your king is coming on a donkey on the foal of a colt. And secondly, you just need to hear this. No one saw this part coming. The king's humble. King Jesus is a humble king. No one saw that happening. No one foresaw that. Like as much as it was in the scriptures, whatever, everyone's expectation was a grandiose display of power, a military takeover, the local Roman government's gonna get toppled and King Jesus is gonna come and reinstate the Jewish people to a place of prominence politically and otherwise, culturally. This Jesus is humble and no one saw that part coming. And that's why a donkey. Now, here's what happens. Jesus gets on the donkey, starts riding towards Jerusalem. And that seems like just filler moments, right? to get to the next few verses. Jesus is on a slow-moving animal. Left foot, right foot. Left foot, right foot. Slowly plodding to his certain death. At any moment, could pull the reins or redirect the animal to the left or to the right and avoid the whole thing. And he doesn't. Aren't you glad Jesus shows up that day, right? Aren't you glad he shows up? And he, in this moment, as he's experiencing all kinds of emotions, the shouting starts, the cheers of praise. As people start showering praise upon him, as he was drawing near, verse 37, chapter 19. Already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Unbelievable. So what's happening in this moment? The people are ushering him into the city. Like, you're the king who's gonna take over. Hosanna, save us, we pray. And Jesus gets confronted by those Pharisees, the religious elite, who understand what's taking place. Like, those aren't just generic shouts of praise. They are, they're attributing divinity to Jesus with a divine title. Like, these are things you shout at the Messiah, at that rescuer we've been waiting for. 
They're not just saying that you're associated with divinity. They're ascribing divinity in that moment. And the Pharisees say, whoa, 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 you need to put them in their place. They're calling you the king. They're calling you God's king. Are you going to correct them? And Jesus essentially says, no. He's a humble king, but he's a bold king too. He's both things, and you're called to be both things as well. He's bold. And he says, no, I'm not going to correct them. A, they're right. Uh, And then B, if they were silent, wouldn't matter, because the moment is so powerful and so anointed and so grandiose that the rocks would shout out if they were quiet. Man, beautiful, beautiful stuff. So what happens next? It says in the text, that we read together uh, before Donald and I came out, that Jesus comes to be able to see the city itself. And what's he do? He weeps. He weeps over the city. First thing you need to hear from me on this one, Jesus feels stuff. I know that's not a very theological way to say that, Jesus has emotions. God feels stuff. Your actions affect God's emotions. And this is an example of it. And then you think about it. He's weeping here, weeping over the city. I just told you a story about Lazarus where he's weeping over Lazarus, Lazarus and over death in general. And then we're a couple days away from the Garden of Gethsemane where hours before his death, Jesus is going to be sweating blood We can assume crying and weeping out to the father, asking if there's a plan B, but declaring his commitment to to plan A. Jesus feels things. And yes, in this moment, Jesus is weeping because what he says, he knows that just a couple decades down the line, Jerusalem's gonna fall. City's gonna be under siege and there's gonna be destruction and death beyond anything anyone can imagine. He knows that, that's what he references. And of course he's crying over that, but you wanna know what I think he's crying about? It's something some of you guys need to hear. It's that you can be in the right place at the right time, saying the right things and not be right with God. That describes much of the crowd that day and that almost certainly describes many of you. Some of you at the very least, right? Where you find yourself either one time or in a rhythm of being around godly people and like doing godly stuff or participating in godly ritual, but having no knowledge of God. It's, and that's not a shame thing. It's so easy to fall into that. It's not that hard to fake it, is it? Isn't that the terrifying part of, of cultural Christianity based on appearance and proximity and, you know, things like that? This is a moment where people are in the right spot where the king is coming, saying the right stuff, shouts of praise, shouts of adoration, but they don't know who the king is yet. And that moves Jesus to tears the same way he's moved to tears if that's your story. He doesn't want just like your attendance. He's after your heart. He loves you. He wants you. He wants healing for you, forgiveness for you, intimacy with you, fulfillment for you, joy for you. He doesn't want you to just be nearby. He's after your heart. And that's just never gonna be enough for him. It's enough to make him weep on that day 2,000 years ago, and it's enough to make him weep today. 
Now, these last couple verses get us home. Get us home to a place of clearly provided response of getting to be like Jesus as we try to love Jesus and introduce others to Jesus. Because where does he go after he arrives in the city? He goes right to the temple. He goes right to the center of Jewish life and custom and religion. Right to the heart of the matter, if you will. The same way he's doing with you right now, right? Gets right to your heart, right to the heart of the matter. And he does two things once he's in the temple. And they show us something so crucial. And if you're reading at breakneck speed, you completely miss it. I did until the last couple of weeks. He goes right to the temple. And the first thing it says that he does is he casts out, he removes the merchants that are in the temple. He comes to find this is an, the second time he's had this experience. He comes in, these people have created an industry around what was meant for intimacy. This is what I mean by that. That this was the time for sacrifices. And there are people coming to Jerusalem like crazy from all over the known world to be a part of the feast of the Passover. They're going to have to sacrifice animals. And there are people selling animals that they know pilgrims will be required to buy. They can charge whatever they want. They can take advantage of people. There's also money changers there dealing with people who have different currencies, completely taking advantage of the outsider and the sojourner, the opposite of the heart of God in the Old Testament, who's constantly saying, no, 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 the kingdom's about the outsider being brought in and loved and served, and you're exploiting them. You're taking advantage of them, and this won't do. We don't see it happen in this, in this instance, but in the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus is so upset by this scene by the merchants in the temple, that he goes away. See if this matches your picture of Jesus in your head that's like carrying a fluffy sheep and just like humming very happily. He goes away and he braids a whip and then he uses the whip to drive out the merchants from what was meant to be a house of prayer. Braids a whip. You and I get crazy ideas when we're really angry, right? The things we're gonna do in a couple minutes once we get ready. But usually we walk away and we're like, ah, that's crazy, I can't do that. Jesus spends time braiding a whip. That's how you braid whips, I've studied. It's just like this, sorry. Anyway, uh, but he comes back, he's that upset, this Jesus who has emotions, right? And he, whip or not, he removes the merchants and the exploitation and the taking advantage of one another and the mockery of God. He removes that from the temple. And then the only other verse we've got is this that he teaches in the temple. That he stands where the typical teachers that are all about legalism and earning and showmanship and burdensome things, he removes those things, removes the merchants, the exploitation, and what does he replace them with? Himself. Come on, that's so good. I cannot get over how good that is. Like Jesus comes in, removes the things that are harmful and false and replaces them with himself. That's what happens when the king shows up in redemptive history, in those moments. That's how it went down. Jesus showed up, lovingly confronted what he saw, removed what was harmful, and replaced it with himself. That's how the king showed up 2,000 years ago. Make this connection with me. That's how he's showing up in your life today. In the exact same way. That's what this moment, that's what this morning is all about. It's about Jesus showing up in your life. 
You think you came here? You think you showed up? Yeah, sure. He's showing up. And he's lovingly confronting you because he loves you. And he's leaning on things that you know are not the way they're supposed to be. He's lovingly confronting you by way of the Holy Spirit and by the way of his scriptures, right? And the invitation that's going out is, will you let me remove this thing that is harming you and disappointing you? This thing you have been putting your, getting your identity from and putting your hope in. Will you let me remove that harmful thing because it's harmful to you, it's harmful to the people around you in ways you don't even know? Will you direct your worship elsewhere? But right now, will you let me remove that? And then he's saying, will you replace that thing with me? With grace you can only get from me. With forgiveness you can only get from me. With healing you can only get from me. With second and third and fourth and fifth and 50th chances that only come from me, with empowerment that only comes from me. Will you replace those things with me? Jesus is showing up in your life, lovingly confronting you because he loves you, and then inviting you to remove and replace. Guys, this process that we're called into as followers of Jesus, this never-ending process of removal and replacement, we're supposed to do it daily removing the things that we're putting trust in other than the one worthy of our trust and replacing them with Jesus. Guys, we call that repentance. Some words are not worth fighting for. This is one it's worth fighting for. We have a very real enemy who has tried to make you think of things like shame and pain and whatever when you hear the word repentance. In the doxa family, I believe it already is this way, but it needs to become this way even more so. Repentance equals joy. Repentance equals good things. Repentance is a word we fight for. Repentance is something we have to embrace together, right? That is so true. It is worth fighting for that word. We're invited into this removal and replacement rhythm as a family of believers. And it is in doing that that empowers us to be a part of the final thing that I believe God is putting before you today. Yes, he showed up in redemptive history. Yes, he's showing up in your life in that way, but this is the way he wants to show up in the lives of the people you care about. Is you being like Jesus in this way? Christian, are you willing to show up? Are you willing to just show up in the lives of the people around you? Are you willing to do that? Just in the, in the context of relationship, will you show up? In the spontaneous, spirit-guided moment on the bus or in the coffee shop or at work where you just know there's a cracked door, are you willing to show up? And then are you willing to take it a step further in the context of relationship? Are you willing to lovingly confront people about the things that are harming them and the people around them? Or the things that seem very satisfying now but will harm them later? Are, are you willing to be confrontational in a loving way? in a humble way, but a bold way, just like your king? Are you willing to show up? Are you willing to confront? And then, are you willing to invite people to remove those things? And the best way to do it is to give examples of how you've done that in your past. Not to puff yourself up, but to make much of the God that lives in you that empowered you to overcome things you didn't think you could overcome. To say, I have been able to remove something like this before, you can too. Not because you're great, but because the spirit that lives in you as a follower of Jesus is great. 
Uh, you can do this and I'll, I'll walk with you through this removal process. And then are you willing to help people with the replacement process? Can I introduce you to or can I reacquaint you with the one who is capable of satisfying and sustaining and saving you? Can we replace those things that will never do those things with the one who is promised to? He always shows up. That's the call on your life, Christian. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that? I believe you are. And perhaps, just final question as I close it up, perhaps just a linchpin question to help you with those questions. Are you willing to show up? Are you willing to confront? Are you willing to help people remove and replace? I think it's worth asking. When's the last time you cried for your city? Have you had a moment like that before? Have you seen someone else have a moment like that where they're so broken by the fact that they're surrounded by people who have not experienced the hope that they have found in Jesus, that they're moved to tears, something like Jesus. Have you had a moment like that before? This isn't like a guilt or a shame moment, but do you feel that like welled up in you? Have you felt it creeping up before and have you squashed it? Because you had these ridiculous lies in your head and understandably so, like, no, 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 like I, that's too extreme or, you know, like who am I to say that they need this or, or, or whatever? Like, have you been intentionally pushing down the emotions that Jesus feels as he looks upon ignorance to how beautiful he is? Have you been suppressing those things? Because Jesus embraced them and let them come out and those feelings weren't the point, but they were certainly a starting place because he didn't just experience those tears, he acted on them. They helped like muster up memory of what he was doing and why he was doing it. And he was willing to count the cost and put right foot in front of left and go pay whatever cost would be required to see those people experience the love they were ignorant to in that moment. Have you had a moment like that? Do you long for one? Might this be a moment like that for you? I wanna be shoulder to shoulder with you guys in this city for decades. That's my desire. It's not enough for us to have slick programming or even biblically accurate models of community, like missional community and the beauty that it is to equip missionaries to live on purpose. I want gospel saturation like you, I'm all in. But it's not enough to just have a really solid plan. Do we feel that burden? Do we long to see others experience what it's like when Jesus shows up? If you're willing to pay that cost emotionally and with your time and your talent and your treasure, I'm telling you there is a joy and a fulfillment waiting for you that is reserved for those who have dedicated their lives to seeing Jesus show up in the lives of others. Will you bow your heads for me so I can pray for you? Guys, I'm just gonna put a couple things before you for you to think about. Jesus has lovingly confronted us this morning and I wanna help bring that home. Uh, first of all, just is there a way you need Jesus to show up specifically? I challenge you to ask him to do so in this moment. And then how might he be lovingly confronting you 
just to review, do, do you have an eye for those on the margins and a heart to see them brought to the center, to the king? Doxa, I'm asking you, is, is your church family marked by proclamation, by healing, and by freedom? And are you playing your role in that? I'm just going to ask you straight up, are, are you one of those in the right place at the right time, saying the right things but not right with God? Do you need to stop faking it that he need not weep over you? You can tell God that today, that you're done faking it. And you can say, Jesus, I'm showing up. I believe you showed up for me, and I'm showing up. Here, here I am. I'm saying, yes, I'm all in. And guys, do you need to remove from the temple of your heart things that you've been worshiping, trusting, and getting your very identity from? If you're willing, he will do the heavy lifting. He has done the heavy lifting already by living the life you couldn't live, by dying the death you deserved on the cross for your sins because he loves you, by rising from death to new life so you can have new life. That's the gospel, and it's true today. And finally, do you need to replace those things with Jesus himself? He's asking these things so you might experience the joy of being known by the king and making the king known. Will you say yes to him today? That kingdom come, that will be done in Seattle as it is in heaven. And everybody said together, amen.